Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus. And as you do, I want to welcome you on this beautiful Easter morning. Could not have asked for, for better weather. Finally, uh, we got a, a good spring day. Um, as the songs that we have sung uh, remind us, it is as winter fades and spring becomes a reality. It also is pointing us to the new life that we have in Christ. If you are a guest with us today, we were thankful and, and honored that you have chosen to worship with us today. If you have any questions about anything that you hear um, and would like just to get together over, over coffee or, or send an email, whatever it may be, we'd love to get together, answer any of those questions, get to know one another better. Um, so again, I, I can be reached in probably more ways than I would like to be able to be reached, um, whether it be email or social media or, or just a, a text message, or if you just want to talk to me after the service, we'd love to do so or any of our our elders. But so glad that you have uh, chosen to worship with us today. Has anybody else had one of those mornings in, in recent days, maybe it is today, where you've just kind of woken up and started the day and you already feel like you're out of breath? Yeah, like you're just getting started and then it's like, you, you get up and like take for today, for example, and you say, man, everybody, time to get up. It's Easter morning. Let's go. I'm not going to tell you again, it's time to go. All right, let's, let's go. We're running late. We've got to get out of the house. And then you get everybody in the car. You get in the car. You make your way here. Um, you're just worn out and maybe not even know why. You, you get here. You open the door. You step out of the car. Um, you've taken that deep breath. You put the, that superficial smile on your face. And you're like, I'm here. I've made it. Maybe that's the way you feel this morning. Maybe that's the way you felt for a while. It's just been a difficult season. And what you are needing of is, is, is just to take a breath and, and really to have a, a new beginning, a, a fresh start. Last week, I, I sat down and I, I, after the second service and went home and had a meeting at three o'clock for our Kenya mission trip. And I just took an hour and a half to take a deep breath. And I took that deep breath of all things, I decided to watch the master's. And I watched the Masters because Tiger Woods was in the hunt. He was in the hunt for uh, the first time in a long time. And some people will say, you know, why are you going to watch Tiger Woods? You know, you know, all these other golfers out there. And you know what Tiger's life has been like and all of this and that. And I said, yeah, I understand where all that's at. But see, when I watch Tiger Woods, um, I'm taken back to 1997 when I was a senior in high school. And Tiger Woods was winning his very first Masters. The very first one as, as a young guy and the world is at his fingertips and it just seems like you know, the, the fist pumps and the roar of the crowd and the, the, the dominance that, that seemed to be there and was there. All the dreams and aspirations of breaking records and all, all of those things. Now, when I think of Tiger Woods and I say it takes me back, I'm not thinking of my life in any of those type of things of winning masters or winning championships. But, but I, I do think about how, even though his life is so different from mine in so many ways, there's a lot of similarities. I think we can all have some similarities there because none of our lives have turned out exactly the way we planned. We've all had some ups and downs along the way. And I think about that, and I'm thankful for the Lord for new beginnings and fresh starts. So when he sank that putt at 18 to win the Masters, my hands went in the air in celebration with him. 
I got chills and I got excited and my wife says, that's weird. Maybe so. But I'm, I'm a sucker for redemption stories. I'm a sucker for new beginnings. And I think, maybe wrong here, but I think that's something we can all relate to. The desire for a fresh start is exactly what we have in the gospel and that's exactly what we have in the text that we have before us today. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 12, where the Lord enacts the 10th and final plague. And for those of you who are new with us, we've been journeying, journeying through Exodus and landing today with intention um, on this 10th and final plague, at the conclusion of which the Israel will experience a new beginning. So picking up in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the, the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, after all these and other instructions, how did the Israelites respond? After getting all these, these instructions, all these things, how do, we, how do they respond? Well, let's skip down with me just to verse 27, the second part of verse 27. And we see that the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And we're gonna come back to that in just a moment, but continuing in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and on all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up. Go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, 
and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. And with those words, the people of Israel are slaves of Pharaoh and Egypt no more. Their new beginning has begun. See, a promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 is now being fulfilled right here in this text. God having raised up a redeemer in Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, a people that God created for himself, then drew into Egypt through the whole story of Joseph to to grow them and preserve them. And now he's drawing them out to redeem them just as he's promised. He's drawing them out of Egypt to draw them into relationship with himself to draw them into a new beginning. In church, it's got the gospel written all over it. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna ask and try to answer six different questions that are stemming out of this passage. There's so much here that I would love to be able to dive into even further, but for the sake of time, we will not be able to, but we're gonna look at six questions today, starting with a basic question of what is Passover? Like what is Passover? Historically, it's the night that the Lord saved the life of every Israelite who took faith-filled refuge under the blood of the Lamb, just as God had instructed. And it's the night that God enacted his just judgment in taking the life of every firstborn in every Egyptian home that didn't. So in, in some homes that night, you're having, you're having worship and you're having thanksgiving. Thanking the Lord for his provision and his grace. And in other homes, you're hearing great cries of anguish. Great cries of anguish. But for Israel, for God's children, in in one overarching sense, this is the start of a new beginning. And today, what we we see and understand Passover to be is, is both an actual event in history, an event that did take place, and it is a... Jewish holiday celebrating this event. And that's really the, the, the premise for any holiday, isn't it? Isn't it where, where, it's, where it's an actual event that is then being celebrated on a given date for that event. You just take a birthday, for example. What, what do we do at the birth of a child? We celebrate, right? I, I hope so. Like we celebrate the birth of a child. Every reason to celebrate the birth of a child. It's a new beginning. And then what do we do every year after that? We celebrate and we remember as we celebrate. I think about that and I can't help but think about my own son. When we got the phone call that his, his birth mom had gone into labor and it was like, we got the phone call and it was, it's baby time. And it was like, oh snap. And we just took off, loaded everything in the car and made the hour and a half drive from Memphis to, to Jackson, Tennessee. And, and I remember everything. I just, it seems like I remember everything. Getting there and seeing him get his first bath. I remember like watching him and uh, all of that like, through the baby window, whatever they call it. You know, they line up all the babies inside of there. I don't know what it's called. But I, I remember him being in there and I, I just remember some gentleman coming up to me and just nicely saying, which one's yours? And, and my emotions hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, that one. 
And I was pretty confident I was pointing at the right one. But that one, it's mine. That's my son. And every year after on his birthday, what do we do? We celebrate. And we remember. We celebrate a new beginning in his life, but we also celebrate and remember the new beginning as a family of three. And that's what we see with the Passover. Just look at how chapter 12 starts here. With the Lord telling Moses and Aaron in verse two, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first of the month for you. See, what God does here with Passover is he's resetting Israel's calendar, if you will. He's like, okay, the old one's gone. The new one is here. This is a new day in your life. God establishing Israel's new yearly calendar to start very beginning, every year, let's, let's start by remembering the great salvation that God has worked in your life. It's celebrating a new beginning. Their old life as slaves is ending, and a new life as sons is beginning. And that's what it means to be united in Christ. That's what it means, a new beginning. A new birth, as the Bible tells us. The old life of slavery to to sin and to death ends. And a new life in Christ begins. It's a change where, where Christ forevermore becomes the center of the Christian's life. So if you're a follower of Christ today, you may not know the exact day or time or hour of when you came to faith in, in Christ, and that's okay. Most people don't. But you are able to say, I may not know when I came to faith in Christ, but I am not the person that I once was. Somewhere within this season, like one of the greatest stories that I love, I love to recall, and I've shared with some of you, I was in a, a college kind of group and a young lady, uh, 20-something, had come up and she says, I don't, she was struggling because she didn't know like the day and the hour in which she came to faith in Christ. And she goes, she says, Pastor, all I know is that this time last year, this was my life and this is who I am now. And I used to not desire Christ, but today I desire Christ. I want to follow Christ. I said, so what's your concern? I said, sounds to me like you've come to faith in Christ. It doesn't matter the day. You're walking with him now. You have experienced a new beginning. Have you experienced a new beginning? Question number two, why such detailed instructions for for the Passover meal? Because we have instructions for this meal given twice in chapter 12, in verses 1 through 13, and then again in verses 21 through 23. And then those instructions are separated by the instructions for the festival of the unleavened bread in verses 14 through 20. So you got Passover and the festival of unleavened bread right here, both of these combining for one week-long celebration. But notice how everything centers around food. You read that and you're like, man, there's food everywhere in this. Everything's about food. I'm like, that's my kind of people right here. (laughs) Except for the whole no pork thing, but that's another sermon for another day. (laughs) But the instructions are specific in how they are to celebrate. Every home having the same meal, the same place, the same time, all, all in the same way. Now, the closest thing that I believe that we have to this within our culture is Thanksgiving. 
Uh, the closest holiday that we have where everybody's in general having about the same meal because most of us are gonna have turkey. How many of you can have turkey for Thanksgiving? And, and some of you are not gonna raise your hands at all, but how many of you like something other than turkey? A couple hands go up. Y'all are the weird folks, all right? <laughs> but most in general are having turkey for Thanksgiving and then you're having some kind of dressing. How many of you have dressing for, for Thanksgiving? I guarantee you though, if I came to your house, your dressing is gonna be different than our dressing. And then if you go to somebody else's house, their dressing is going to be different than their dressing. And then everybody kind of has the obligatory cranberry sauce on the table that like one person eats and the other people just look at it as a nice colorful thing on the table. <laughs> but for Passover, it's the exact same meal eaten the exact same way at every single home. And every part of the meal has significance. It's intended to remind and it's intended to teach. So take the, the bitter herbs, for example. Doesn't that sound lovely? I can hear it now, like, Mom, I just can't wait for the bitter herbs this year. Like, I'm really looking forward to the tasty bitter. No, they're not eating them for their enjoyment. They're, in, they're eating them to, as a reminder of the bitter slavery that the Lord redeemed them from. It's a reminder, every bite being a reminder of either what they came out of or what their ancestors came out of. Or take the unleavened bread, for example. Why eat bread without yeast? It makes no sense other than that God told them to. Doesn't sound appealing at all, but God told them to. Because what does yeast do? It, it causes the bread to rise. So eating the bread be, before it rose was symbolic of their hasty departure from, from Egypt. The leaving behind of one life and the immediate beginning of a new life. So think of the application here for Christians. It's a reminder of the holiness God's children are called to when we come to faith in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. Look with me at Paul, how he uses this imagery in 1 Corinthians, talking about the need for purity within the, the church in Corinth, specifically referring to a problem revolving around sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little sin leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, Paul's charge for purity here is really a call for holiness. The leaven here is a metaphor for sin. Paul telling the church of Corinth that followers of Christ are not to participate in sexual immorality, aren't to live in unrepentant sin. It has to be removed from their life. Now, does this mean that a Christian will not sin? No, it does not mean that. No, we must, though, fight to remove sin from our life, to, to pursue holiness. That's why in Exodus chapter 12, verse 15, the Lord instructs them on the first day of this celebration, the first day of this new year, the first day of this holiday, you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. Get it out. Now, why? 
Why would they remove, why would the Lord instruct them to remove all the leaven out of their houses? Because they're not to have it. None of the bread is to be made with leaven. So what it is doing is saying, hey, I'm going to remove any means of an accident here. I'm going to remove any temptation that you may have to, to add the leaven. It needs to be gone. Remove it from your house. Again, massive amounts of application here. Ask yourself, what needs to be removed from your life to remove that temptation from sin? What barriers need to be replaced? What things need to be removed to, to remove that and to help you to walk and to pursue in holiness? But then in that, we need to ask the question, on what basis is this done? Is, is this just saying, hey, go clean up your life and get things in order and get your house straight all in your own power and your strength like a self-help manual? No, that's not what's taking place. No, Paul's basis for this is twofold. One, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's essential. We have the ability to cleanse out the old leaven, the old life, because and only because Christ atoned for our sins, because we've been given a new beginning. See, Christ did not die and rise from the grave to leave us in our sinful state. And then two, because we're in Christ, he tells us, Paul tells us, you really are unleavened meaning we who are in Christ are already a new batch without the East. We're a new creation. If we are in Christ, we have experienced and received a, a new beginning. We have been born again. And as such, we are to act like who we are. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is are we acting like who we are? Or are we acting like who God has called us to be? So yes, so much teaching taking place at the Passover, more that we can begin to discuss. But at the center of the meal is a lamb without blemish. So question number three, why an unblemished lamb? Because the lamb was to serve as a substitute for Israel. As verse three tells us, that the lamb, a lamb for a household. So the judgment of God is coming. Final plague is, is coming. And let's be clear, there are no innocent people here. There's no one worthy of salvation, not the Egyptians nor the Israelites. It may be the Old Testament, but this is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So no innocent people. And the judgment of God is coming. And the judgment is either going to fall on the lamb or it's going to fall upon the household. And that's why the specifications for the lamb are so specific. In order for it to serve as a substitute, it had to be unblemished. As Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17.1 tells us, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So extremely important for this lamb to be unblemished. For Israel to be saved, it required a perfect substitute to be sacrificed in its place. A vivid reminder that all deserve judgment. Israel deserved judgment. Egypt deserved judgment. We deserve judgment. Again, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
The only one not deserving judgment in this picture is the unblemished lamb. And church, that's the gospel. This is the gospel. The wonderful words of John the Baptist that he declared in reference to Christ, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the eternal son of God, living the sinless life that we were intended to live. And after walking in complete obedience to the father, he who knew no sin, spotless, unblemished, became sin for us by by offering his life as a substitute for everyone who believes. Which begs the question, do you believe? Do you believe? And it brings us to question number four. Why blood over the doorpost? The answer, as an act of faith-filled obedience. The Lord saying in Exodus chapter 12, verse seven, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses which they eat it. Then verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So why blood of the doorpost? Chiefly because God told them to. God telling them that every house that didn't take shelter under the blood of the unblemished lamb would lose their firstborn. You look back in verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt at night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. It's clear that judgment is coming. But... For every house that had blood over the doorpost, they were signifying that judgment had already come to their house through the unblemished sacrificial lamb. And for that to happen, church, that required faith from the people of Israel. It's having faith that God will do what he says he will do. It's like what we saw with the the plagues of, of hail last week. Those who feared the Lord listened to the Lord. They obeyed his word. They they brought their their slaves and their livestock into their house to preserve them from, from the judgment. But those who did not believe, those who did not listen, the hail struck down and killed their livestock and, and killed their, their their slaves. Obedience was was necessary. Everyone who didn't listen was destroyed. But everyone who listens and obeys, now looking at the plague of the 10th plague, the final Passover, everyone who takes shelter under the blood of the unblemished lamb is saved. Not by their works, not by their efforts, but by grace through faith. Faith that is evidenced in obedience. Then we have to ask the question, obedience in what? and placing the blood over the doorpost just as the Lord commanded. That took faith. But it's faith that is marked by obedience. Because if they don't do that, then they're not passed over from God's judgment. So in that sense, obedience is essential to salvation. But it's not their obedience that saves, and neither is it our obedience that saves. No, it is Christ's obedience that saves. 
And it's in faith in Christ alone that we stand before God, trusting and believing that his blood is enough to save us and secure us from God's judgment. Not our works, not our efforts, not even our faith, but the righteousness of Christ. As we sang earlier, in Christ alone we stand. And this is what saving faith looks like in action. It's what we talked about earlier in reading the text, the second part of verse 27. After they received the Lord's instruction, the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord commanded, they worshiped and they obeyed. Their obedience stemming from their worship. Notice which comes first. It's the worship. Their worship comes first. Their obedience is driven by their worship. So can that be said of us today? That we obey as a result of our worship. Is our obedience stemming from our our worship? Now question number five. Why the death of the firstborn? Well, think back to chapter four, verse 22. Flip back with her if you can for just a moment. Chapter four, verse 22. And who does God refer to as his firstborn? Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. See, as we've discussed previously, Exodus is a story of sonship. Can't miss the the language that Israel is called God's firstborn son and that he threatens to kill Pharaoh's firstborn, which is exactly what we see being fulfilled in the 10th plague. Pharaoh has refused to let God's people go and God is staying true to his word as Pharaoh's son is one of the many firstborns to die. Why? Because he and the others refused to listen to the Lord and did not take shelter under the lamb. But as we looked at just a few weeks ago, here's where it's easy to look at Pharaoh and the people of Egypt as the bad guys, to see them as the villains, the villains of the story that are getting what they deserve, and then to see Israel as as the good guys. Because what do most stories that we like have? They have the stories of the good guy and the bad guy, the, the, the white hat and the dark hat, the good side of the force and the bad side of the force. It's why all the Marvel movies are as big as they are right now. You got the good guys and the bad guys, the heroes and the villains, but there's only one hero of this story and it's not Egypt nor Israel for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The hero of this story is Jesus, the beloved son of God, the true firstborn of all creation who lived the life that Adam failed to live, that lived the life that that Israel failed to live, that lived the life that we failed to live. The hero of this story is the spotless lamb of God who lived and died to take away the sins of the world. He's the hero of this story. Yes, God is enacting judgment on the firstborn of Egypt in the Passover. We see his judgment clearly in the Old Testament. But when we turn the pages to the New Testament... We see him enacting judgment upon his firstborn son at the cross as a substitute for everyone who believes. The greatest act of love the world has ever known. Now, one last question. 
What does Passover have to do with Easter? What does any of this have to do with Easter? Well, if it's not already clear, Passover has everything to do with Easter. But turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. And Jesus celebrating Passover with his disciples the night before his death. In verse 22, Mark chapter 14. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And church, what we need to understand is that this Passover meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, you remember as we talked earlier, it's, it's both the remembering an actual historical event and celebrating just as everyone had done all the years prior. This Passover meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples is literally the last Passover meal. So from the first Passover until this Passover, the people of Israel were instructed to observe Passover at the start of every year, year after year after year after year, the same way, unblemished lambs, year after year after year. Now, they didn't always do that. There are many years where they didn't. But now this is the last one. And say, well, Jeremy, don't, don't, don't the Jewish people still celebrate Passover today? Well, yes, culturally, it still exists. It's still practiced. But this is the last one of any spiritual significance. I mean, why? Why is this the last one of any spiritual significance? Because everything the first Passover and subsequent Passovers were pointing to was fulfilled in Christ. See, Passover has everything to do with Easter because the judgment of God that we deserve did not pass over Christ. No, it landed directly on Christ. Why? So that God's judgment would pass over everyone who puts their faith in Christ as their only hope in life and in death. God's judgment either landing on Christ or landing on us. See, with the first Passover, it was one lamb per family. But at the crucifixion of Christ, it was one lamb for all the world. And the empty tomb is the declaration that it worked. It worked. The wrath of God satisfied by the blood of his firstborn son. And that's what we remember and celebrate, not only today, but every day, that Christ is risen from the dead. And because Christ has risen from the dead, the church, we who are in Christ have been given a new beginning, a new birth. And to celebrate, to celebrate the, the, the Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we, we don't take a Passover. No, we take of the Lord's table. We take of the Lord's supper. The bread serving as a sign of his body and the cup serving as a sign of his blood that was shed for us the sign of the unblemished lamb who died in our place, who rose in victory over death 
declaring victory over sin and death once and for all. So I guess there is one more question that I have for you today. Are you taking faith-filled refuge under the blood of the Lamb? Have you received a new beginning? And if not, what's stopping you? Because the scripture is, is clear. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. So repent of your sins and believe in Jesus today and you will be saved. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me so. It tells me that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if we have called upon the name of the Lord and we are trusting him as our only hope in life and in death, then we have received a new beginning. And if that's you today, if you are a baptized follower of Christ, trusting him as your only hope in life and in death, we invite you to come to the table, remembering and celebrating the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, the new life that you've been given in him. So I'm about to pray. And then I want to ask you to take time to prepare your own hearts before coming to the table. Take time to repent of your sin. Take time to, to give thanks to, to the Lord for all he has done, to, to meditate upon the gospel. And then come and, and get the elements. You're going to find two cups stacked one on top of the other, both the bread and the juice. And then go back to your seats and then we will wait and we will take of these elements together as a church body here momentarily. Now let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the life that he lived, the death that he died, and that because the resurrection is true, he right now is interceding for his children before you. Thank you for securing us in Christ. Thank you for the hope that is found in the new life we've been given in you. Thank you. Thank you for the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.